Hey, it's Meg. I just wanted to update you about the Learn, Play, Thrive Education Hub. Things are changing fast over here. We now have a live two-hour course with Rachel Dorsey. It's called A Crash Course in Neurodiversity Affirming Goal Writing. This is completely revamped from the last time we offered it. So if you took it before, take it again. This is now enrolling and will fill up fast. We also have folks signing up in droves for our next Neurodiversity Continuing Education Summit. We're working on getting it registered for ASWB CEUs as well as ASHA and AOTA. As always, we have our longer, comprehensive, self-paced courses on strengths-based visual supports, AAC and goal writing, as well as a one-hour ethics course on sex. We offer group discounts. We recently had a school system enroll 60 people. We have a therapy company looking to enroll 400 folks in the summit. So get your group together and reach out to us. If you are still throwing away your continuing education hours just to get your license renewal done, this is your call to make a new plan. You can check it all out at learnplaythrive.com slash trainings. Welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast, a place where we explore research, amplify autistic voices, and change the way we think about autism in life and in our professional therapy practices. I'm Meg Farrell from LearnPlayThrive.com. Before we get started, a quick note on language. On this podcast, you'll hear me and many of my guests use identity-affirming language. That means we say autistic person rather than person with autism, because this is the preference of most autistic adults. Being autistic is a part of their identity that they don't need to be separated from. Join us in embracing the word autistic to help reduce the stigma. Welcome to episode 80 with Tiffany Hammond, author of A Day With No Words and the person behind the social media site Fidgets and Fries. On the podcast, I often talk with autistic women who were diagnosed after their kids were diagnosed as autistic. And these women often express how much they were able to find self-acceptance once they learned they were autistic. Today's conversation about Tiffany's own journey towards finding out that she was autistic is really different from that. And Tiffany explains how her experience living at the intersection of being Black and autistic diverges from that of many of the white autistic mothers who we've heard from on the podcast. She shares what it's like being the parent of a newly diagnosed child and receiving mountains of assignments and things to tackle. And she has a really practical and helpful analysis of how this could have gone differently for her family. Her message is one that providers should have in the front of our minds as we support families. But in truth, we can go our whole careers without ever learning it. In the conversation, Tiffany and I dive into her wildly popular new book, A Day With No Words, which she wrote partly about her son's journey, who's an AAC user, and she's using her book to increase representation for AAC users everywhere. Tiffany talks about the hurdles she had to cross to get the book published in its current form and the impact it's having. 
Tiffany Hammond joined us from her home in Texas. She has a master's degree in developmental psychology. She's a disability justice advocate and a writer who uses her story to change the narrative around autism. If you don't follow her social media page, Fidgets and Fries, run do that now, and then make a quick stop at your local bookstore for her children's book, A Day With No Words. Here is the conversation with Tiffany Hammond. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited to sit down and talk to you. I've been following you online for a long time and watching all of the exciting things you've been doing lately with your book and your book tour. And I, I've i learned so much from you and I want to talk about it all. But I want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, finding out you're autistic, the impact that had on you, sort of what your journey was to this point that you're at in your life now? Yeah, um, I'm Tiffany, a uh, voice behind Fidgets and Fries. I was diagnosed when I was 18. It was suspected years earlier, but we didn't really like pursue it or or do any further like testing with it I just did the therapies uh that go with it so the therapy without the formality of the diagnosis but when I turned 18 I was a freshman in college I was diagnosed then and it was the result of having a meltdown and I missed class and I wanted a note and I was told by other students that Sometimes it was easier to get in with psych services to get the note quicker than it is to get in with the, the university clinic. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. It's also closer to me, um, shorter walk. So I went in, I just was like trying to get this note and didn't really realize that like the, the papers and things that I was filling out was like helping them to like assess me and having the uh, conversation with the doctors there didn't realize it was also part of assessing me and then when they give me more papers <laughs> to to like look at so not really realizing just figuring like this is taking a long time to give me a note uh, an excuse note and then uh long story short they called me in about two days later and they gave me the note for class, but then they called me in two days later for a diagnosis of Asperger's at the time. And I was like, okay, cool. I just thought it was like a, a weird name for like anxiety. I just took the took the papers and the recommendations they put on it and, you know, thanked them for their time, went back to my dorm room and put it in my dresser drawers under a bunch of clothes I don't wear. And that was it. I didn't really read through it. I didn't really go and want to understand it more. It gave me like a overview of what they felt that it meant and what it meant for me. But I was already having a hard time in school and I was already different. I was already having a, a roommate who was part part kind of hated me and then part kind of was scared of me and <laughs> stuff. So it was like, and I, so it was weird. And so I was like, I didn't really need more ways to stand out. So I didn't focus on it. Just kind of went back to doing what I was doing and not realizing that what I was doing was part of being in this diagnosis. Uh, I told my grandma and I told my 
husband who I met in college, kind of around the same time, maybe a few months later. He felt safe enough to tell because I didn't really, like, I kind of didn't know him, but I kind of, and I needed kind of someone to tell, tell it to. So those are the only two that I really knew. And it was cool because he helped me, helped me through life <laughs> and stuff. So, and I was kind of just getting on. I was still struggling in the way that I was always struggling, but I just kind of stayed as I was. And the diagnosis didn't impact me at the time that I got it. It just, it, it influenced how I responded to it, like by hiding it and continuing business as usual. And in that way, but it didn't fully like hit me until I had kids and then probably more closer to when JoJo was diagnosed was when it was like bigger, like, but yeah. So So you had a a non-consensual diagnostic process that wasn't even really explained to you. Yeah. Twice, honestly. Like the second time I went, I got diagnosed again. I was like 35, 36. And I went in because I felt like it had to be more than autism. I know I had like depression and stuff. I just felt like there was something else (laughs) kind of like under there. So I went in and I, um, did an evaluation, uh, looking for like other things (laughs) and then I get diagnosed again with it. (laughs) So it's like, cool. So I have like a list of diagnoses and then here, autism will be yada, 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 like, okay. So that was, that was interesting. So I had it twice in your life in a way that you weren't really like expecting to, (laughs) to have it. Like, I'm like, I already know I'm autistic, but I want to know if there's something else like going on with me that's in me I'm like wanted to to see what was what was going on and so they're like okay here here's what's going on but also here autism <laughs> you know so <laughs> thanks guys it was fun <laughs> you know so they gave me like the list of things you should do after you're diagnosed with with any of those diagnoses that they gave me you know they give you like um like a a plan, a quote-unquote plan uh, to follow. So they gave me all that stuff. Gave me a plan, and yeah, so it was it was it was interesting. But yeah, I, I didn't really feel the weight of the the diagnosis until it was probably until JoJo was diagnosed. I started to feel it more. Started to think about it more when Aiden was diagnosed. That's my oldest, and didn't really really kind of like sat and thought about it more deeply until my youngest was diagnosed because at that time at that point you have two you know I can't really like ignore it much anymore and I'm also kind of struggling more with myself and 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 the environment and 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 things like that so life kind of has a way of of making you confront things you didn't really want to so as much as you want to hide things and ignore things and it always comes back it finds a way to to pull you in and and forces you to look at those things 
head on. And that's kind of what happened there. <laughs> yeah, that's so true, especially with parenting. Your story is interesting because I, I interview so many autistic women who are diagnosed after their kids were diagnosed. And they often say, I uh-huh. wish I'd known I was autistic earlier because I thought I was just, you know, uh-huh. some series of other things that was wrong with them that made them different. And people often say like, and then I realized I was autistic. There's other people like me. It's okay to be like this. And they were able to start their process of self-acceptance. And it sounds like you got this diagnosis that you weren't asking for and didn't really have the resources you needed to understand it. And it didn't necessarily have much of an impact on you. It was, you're in college. You're like, I don't need another reason to make people think I'm different. And you weren't right. able to do the processing of it until much later. Yeah. also think that's probably like upbringing and community, community I grew up in. It's interesting because I think that also influences how I advocate and the things that I, and the perspectives that I hold. Because I was diagnosed before kids. But also, I also grew up in a community that it's almost as if we can't afford to have a disability. <laughs> like, we can't, like, it's just not something that we can have. We can't show what many perceive to be like weaknesses and, 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 and anything else that's on top of the uh, assumptions that, that, that people, that society will place upon us because of our being Black. Like to be disabled in the Black community is, is, is interesting and it's, it's different. It's part of the reason probably why we didn't, my family didn't continue to pursue that it was like, okay, she has a little, she's a little bit sad sometimes. And she's a little bit quirky and she's a little bit outside. So everything was like, oh, she's a little bit this, but is there something that we could put her in <laughs> like to like help with that? So yeah, so I had the therapies without the diagnosis. Yeah. And, and I had the, the therapies with the mention of Asperger's at like 14. But it's like, you don't talk about it. You kind of, you do the other therapies and you get thrown into different sports into different activities and you have to interact with with your peers and you have to learn how to be like them and so that you can survive in this world and 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 thrive in this world and you know we learn that from a young age but we don't think about what that means until we're like into like adulthood and stuff so yeah so that's part of also keeping it to myself so when I was diagnosed you're already used to keeping those things to yourself so it wasn't hard to continue to do that so it wasn't it wasn't hard to keep hiding it wasn't hard to keep trying to be as other people were also I didn't we had internet like, you know, and I was like, you know, we had internet when I was in high school, you know, AOL dial-up and all that other stuff. Social media really wasn't a thing big until it was like, like MySpace. And then it kind of turned into Facebook and the Facebook was only for like college kids and stuff, but it wasn't this big thing that it is now. So I didn't have neurodiversity movement. I didn't have like a, a community I could go to and, and things like that. You, you had a diagnosis that was something that impacted your mind, and then, like, people just kind of, like, threw you away and tossed you aside. You're treated badly for physical disabilities, yeah. But once it hits that, your your brain, then of people, like, they recoil and, and, and they want to hide away and, and things like this. So I didn't have that either. 
So when I see like other parents and, and stuff and they're like diagnosed in like 30s and then stuff and after kids and stuff. And so like I get it because I was diagnosed later at 18, but it was suspected when I was years earlier and I had to do the therapies. And so I don't fully connect with them like all the way. I connect with parts of their story, but not the whole of it. So I think that my life influences a lot of how I see things and and how I advocate and how I share. I appreciate you sharing that perspective. I want to talk about Uh how this has played out with your sons and how Uh their stories are, are similar to and different from your own and how you're approaching this. So one of your sons, Aiden, was 17 months when he was diagnosed. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that experience? That was interesting. He's my firstborn. So it's like, you don't have much experience with developmental milestones and things like that. So he was born and he was, I felt like he was just as all other babies. He was bouncy and 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 happy and he cried occasionally when I look back on it I don't know if he cried a whole whole lot but he seemed to enjoy a lot of things like toys and people and and being in their presence and he eat a bunch of spaghettios that was like his favorite thing ever and one day it just kind of he was like changed it was like like a switch and um there might have been like little signs before that, little subtle signs we didn't see or or anything, but for the most part it felt like it was just like nine day. He stopped eating the spaghettios. He he wasn't as interested in people. He played with the toys differently. He still wasn't speaking, so or even trying. He didn't babble. And I think that was probably the main thing we noticed. Like, he didn't really try to to talk. He did all that other stuff so early, like rolling over and sitting up and walking and all of that physical, like, stuff. So it was like, oh, that stuff was early. And, and, and we were like, oh, okay, cool. He didn't think anything of it, but he didn't babble. He didn't try. Um, and... I was like, okay, when he was around one year old, I was like, he still wasn't even trying to babble or, or anything. And I was just like, oh, that's cool. He's only one. He's only been on Earth for 12 months, you know? So, like, I wasn't thinking anything. And then, like, 13 months came, and then there was, like, still nothing. And then 14 months, and then, like, 15 months, and then 16 months. And um, so him not even attempting to 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 babble or anything like that was was concerning but then couple that with like him not feeling like as interested in people and then like kind of what he was doing with the toys and he stopped loving on the spaghettios and like just like changing like how he ate I was like oh okay then I started to get a little bit more concerned and then around 16 months or so my mom they came down to visit. I think we were having like a party or something. And they came down. And then we're watching TV. And like an Autism Speaks commercial comes on. And so like at that time, it was like one in 500 or something. And 
it was listing like all the symptoms. And then my mom was like, why don't you go see about that for Aiden? And I was like, I ain't sure. I don't know. At that time, it's just, it's autism. So it's not Asperger's. So it's not like there's no connection there. And I go and I I just talk to to his, I call the number, but it was like confusing, like how to figure out who to go to and who to talk to. But I think I called around and someone got me in touch with someone with ECI. So like early childhood intervention or something. Uh, so they came out to the house and you know, they're like meeting with Aiden and they're doing their thing and they're writing their notes and um, they weren't qualified to diagnose, but they were able to set up the appointments with like the state that to, to do the diagnosis. So he got an appointment with a clinical psychologist with, with the state. So we went in and then they um, also put him on the waiting list for a developmental pediatrician. So whichever one of those appointments came first. And um, because the wait list for the developmental pediatrician, they told me was like nine months. So we got in first with the clinical psychologist of the state. So we went in, she saw, and she looked at him for like three minutes, maybe. And then she was like, oh, this is autism. So I was like, okay. And then she went into like the, the more of like a, the more of a assessment and stuff. So we got the packet and the diagnosis and then this big thing and and all these instructions. Like, here's the books you need to read. Here's the programs you need to sign up for. Here's the waiver list you need to get on. Here's the, all these other things. So at that time at like 16 and a half months, that's when we signed up for waiver programs that my son is still on the list for that. And yeah, he's still Still on the the waiting list. How old is he? uh, He's 16. Okay. They are for, they had, they have programs that were for kids. So they put us on that list. Um, He came to the top of that list around the age of like eight or so. And he was, he qualified for that program. He was on it for a little bit until they cut funding. And then they were like, now they made the, the guidelines real, real, real strict. And so then he ended up not qualifying for it anymore. The other wait list that we signed up for, they were for programs that were adult programs, programs they get into when they're 22, when they age out of all the other services that they would have. But they say sign up for it early because the wait list is super long and it's like 10 to 15 years long. And we're like, okay, so we signed him up when he's 16 months. He's 16 now and he's still like number. 14, 15,000 on the list. He's not going to be at the top of that list when he's 22. He's he's just not. Um, and that doesn't even guarantee he will qualify for the service. That just means he's on the list to be assessed to get the services. So, but we signed up for that. And then I think I want to say maybe a week or two later, was when the hospital called, because that's where the developmental pediatrician was. And they said, hey, we had a cancellation. Would you like to come in? So I said, fine. We came in and we did like even more tests and and things like that. So that's how he got his second diagnosis of autism. (laughs) And 
Uh, yeah, it, 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 that was pretty hard to deal with. And it was overwhelming. And it was like, you didn't know what to do. You didn't know what that meant. Uh, you, yeah, didn't know first steps. <laughs> you know, you're just lost. You're like reading books and you're trying to join different groups they have in the area and they started services for him at home and then they signed him up for preschool because for him to qualify to go to preschool at age three he had to have meet certain criteria for like public school three uh three years old which he did meet because he had a disability so he's able to go half day and then when he was four he was able to go a little longer but yeah, it was just, it was like a hard time trying to figure all of that out and still wasn't really connecting his autism with mine. He's like still like focusing on him. Yeah. What guidance do you wish you had gotten when he was diagnosed? Mm, I think I would have loved for someone to say, you know, just breathe, <laughs> like, you know, breathe a little bit, take your time. And that. Uh, he didn't change over the course of the night. So the day before, when you didn't know, to the day now you know, he's still the same kid. He just has a diagnosis, and you understand. He, it's just a, it's a, it's a means to to understand him more, and that you know what you can do to try and help him. But just breathe and take a break, and like when they give you that barrel packet. Like, it was, like, this big. Like, the first half was, like, his testing and stuff. And the second half was all the things we needed to do and all the therapies we needed to get him in. And I do believe in the importance of early intervention. Like, I'm not even going to knock that. Like, that's important. But it was a lot. It was, like, get him into this. Get him into that. Do it now. Sign up on this. Sign up for that. Apply for Medicaid. Apply for SSI. Like, Social Security. Uh the income go for, go for this collect all the school reports collect all the, like it, it's a lot it's a lot to apply for medicaid it's a lot to apply for ssi and i didn't even know what ssi was i was just doing it it's like i didn't know but they needed school records medical records birth certificates uh assets uh all these things that you know you have you gotta go and like prove he's disabled enough you know and and and, and that's going to be lifelong and so like it's just like I feel like you just kind of like re-traumatize yourself over and over again because you're like, okay, he's diagnosed and you feel real sad about it. And then you got to go and prove that he's, he's like, he has a diagnosis so you can sign up and get, like, you know, different things. And then they don't explain it well. So I went and I, I applied for SSI. I went through all that again, giving my whole life over to these people. And then he gets approved for it. And they send you a letter. And I didn't even know what SSI was. So they sent a letter and then they sent, like, a check. I'm like, what is this? I don't know what this is. And then you go and you read more of it, and you're like, oh, okay, it's it's like supplemental income to help take care of, take care of Aiden. Cool. It's a couple of days later, they sent a Medicaid card. I didn't even sign up for Medicaid. Why does he have Medicaid? He has Medicaid because he has SSI. I didn't know that, right? So it's just like, it was a lot. You're living with a lot. They stack a lot on you. I just wish that. One, we had a better way to explain the types of services and stuff that they do qualify for. A better way that 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 we can understand what it means and and 
and how to access those services. There's a lot of stuff over the years that I learned that we could qualify for that we didn't understand and we and didn't know about. That they, I, I wish that they would make the sites a little bit easier to navigate, to try and understand those things. And I wish that someone told me that it was okay and that you could just breathe and you can take a break and you could go go somewhere for the weekend, go enjoy yourselves, go for a week, take that paper, all those papers and just Put them aside for a little bit. Yeah, you can still sign up for that stuff. But take three weeks, take a month, take what you need and just rest and just enjoy your child and stuff. Like it's just like a month isn't gonna 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 change it. It's not gonna hurt. You're gonna breathe easy. You're gonna come up with a plan. You're not gonna feel like rushed into to doing stuff and it was so weird to be so rushed in in a state like texas and you're just rushed to what because they don't take very good care of their disabled population i'm like what are we rushing to like i see if we were rushing to sign up for something that was coming to us that was going to help us and it, it wasn't we were just rushed to sign up on more lists and another list and another list you know so I just want parents to to understand that it's a lifelong diagnosis. And I know that a lot of parents hurt when they hear that because I did, because you didn't want to have, you don't want your children to have something that the world would treat them so differently because of, and their life will be made exponentially harder. You don't want that for your kids. and. You know, you feel sad about that and it hurts. And you're going to have a lot of moments where you feel alone. And I just want them to enjoy their children and and love on them as much as they can. And you can still help them, but you got to help yourself too. And I think in all that, I, I forgot to do that. It was just like, bam, 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 let me go, let me go, let me go. They said early intervention is key. Let me do it, let me do it, let me get it, let me go. And I burnt out and I was, I was ineffective <laughs> as a parent. And yeah. This is such good feedback to those of us who are in front of these families, diagnosticians or providers for young kids that we don't just have a child in front of us. We have a parent in front of us, often an autistic parent, not always, but often, and they're having their own experience of their life and their mental health and their relationship with their child. And I think we can get caught up in like, do this and this and this and that, and forget that there's there's a family in front of us that's exhausted, that needs rest, that needs reassurance, that needs more than just a to-do list. So I appreciate you reminding us of that. I want to talk briefly about your other son, Josiah, because your experience was really different with Josiah. You've talked about having to fight for his diagnosis, working with mostly white providers who didn't really understand autism or autism in a young Black child. Can you talk a little bit about what that journey was like? Yeah. By the time we started thinking more about Josiah and and him having autism as well, it was around the time that I started to read and hear and the chatter about autism and of Asperger's being under the umbrella of autism and it's starting to kind of like come together and merge together and being its 
own thing. So I was already looking at Aiden and matching him up with my life. And then I was seeing JoJo and I was seeing like a little bit more of myself in him and how he interacted with the world around him and the people around him. And then by the time it, I brought it up with his doctors when he was like three or so. And they were like, oh, we don't really see it. Let's wait and see. And then um, he qualified to go to pre-K. So I said, fine. So as he was in school, I started to see more, <laughs> like more. So he's three at this time. And then they're like still saying, oh, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. So I'm like, okay, maybe he is just shy. or But I see other things, but fine. Six years old at that time, I was like, I'm not waiting no more because I'm seeing more things. So uh, I stopped listening to his doctor's and the teachers and just demanded like referrals <laughs> to go to other like specialists and stuff. Cause right now they were like, that was like my hurdle was like his PCPs and, you know, in the schools and, and, and things like that. And I thought I had to like listen to them. I was just like, no, nah, I'm just giving referrals places. So they gave me the referrals. So we went we had he had a clinical psychologist, developmental pediatrician, and then like a um it was a, a neurologist. So we had appointments with all three. And so we went to all three. <laughs> um we did the tests for all three and and they were pretty like extensive and they they you know they a couple of them actually came to school and like observed them at school and then you know they observed them in office at school and stuff. So then he got a diagnosis of at the time JoJo was diagnosed, they had levels. So he had level two. And I was like, I knew it. Like, I knew it. But I, I think his hit me harder because I knew it and I waited. And, um, and I felt like, and I, and I was seeing it. But I was letting, like, people tell me it like, wasn't there. And they needed to wait. And I was, like, seeing it. And I just felt like I kind of, like, failed him. So, like, they, like his diagnosis hit me harder way harder it also hit me harder because he was around the age like he was beginning to express things such as is something wrong with me because kids don't want to play with me so like it was things like that and so yeah his, his diagnosis was pretty like hard to take and he was diagnosed at six and I'm going into this school and I'm wanting like you know, he needs an IEP. He needs this. He needs that. You know, and you're giving him the doctor's things. And, you know, they got to run their own evaluations and stuff. And I'm just sitting in here and the lady goes from the school is like, oh, they're giving everyone autism diagnoses. And I wanted to reach across the table and, and they like choke the life out of her. And like, I just like, that's how like mad I was. And I'm just sitting in this chair. And like, thankfully, like my grandma was there at the time, so she was able to like, you know, talk to her in the way that I would have loved to talk to her. <laughs> like, just showing her that she wasn't gonna stand for that, but in a way that was like nicer and kinder and things like that. Cause I was mad. Like, I was mad. I didn't just go. I'm giving you three different people and three different like disciplines or specialties and stuff like I want I felt like that was something that I needed to do because I kept 
getting turned away and they were like, well, he could get a 504, you know, and, and this and this and like keeping saying like, no. So I was like, no, I need more. I need to have more. So I had the clinical psychologist and I said, okay, let me make the appointment with the neurologist. Okay. Let me turn around and make another one with the development of P. Like I need, I felt like I needed all three. And so and I still bring you all three and they assessed him in three different types of ways you know, they had a couple of them, they might have used the same like form, like the ADOS and stuff like that, but they evaluated him differently because they were coming from different like specialties and things like that. Like the neurologist looked at him a little bit differently and they accessed questions a little bit differently and they asked him questions differently. You know, and the clinical psychologist had their own way and, and the developmental patient. And I'm like, I'm bringing you all of these and you're still telling me this. Um, so yeah, his, his, his process was longer. It was harder. It was more stressful and it hurt a little bit more, but we got through it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's lovely following your family now on social media. I want to fast forward a little bit in your story because you recently accomplished this huge, beautiful thing. You published a children's book. It's a New York times bestseller. It's called a day with no words. And you've said that you wrote it because stories are the best teachers and that your goal was to normalize non-speech communication and connection with your son, which Mm -hmm. I know we haven't talked about your AAC journey, so we can tie that in now. I just want to say one of the commenters on your book said the book, quote, teaches us the expansiveness of communication that is possible if our children are truly heard respected and supported. It's such a beautiful gift to readers. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book, what it means to you, and kind of what's what's happening with it now that it's being so well-received? It's so weird because it's like, I never thought that I was going to be a children's book author like so fast as soon, because I, I know I wanted to be a writer. But children's books was like, I was like, that's going to be like my fourth or fifth book, you know, but not my first. So when people would approach me, like different agents and editors and from different like publishing houses, and they were like, hey, you ever thought about writing a book? And I'm like, yeah, all the time. I'm like, hey, we think it'd be perfect for this children's book. And I'm like, what in my content gives you the impression that I write kids' books? Because I was like, my content is like different and like, you know, more complex and deep and and, and kind of like harsh. So I didn't know if that was something I would be able to do. And I shared about the days that we have where we don't talk. And that post was, was pretty, pretty well received. And one of the editors suggested, hey, what about a book on this topic? I said, okay. And long story short, we didn't end up working together. But the idea was still stuck on my head. I got used to it. I was like, yeah, I kind of want that. Because when I do talk about my son and I I talk about non-speakers, I want, I am wanting a better world for them. And I'm doing that through the best way that I know how, and that's writing. And that book stuck with me. So every time someone approached me, I was like, this is the book I want to write. Like, this is the book I want to I want to put out, and it was like some were okay with it, but they wanted the the 
characters to be animals, and that couldn't happen. So we didn't work out. <laughs> and then some weren't actually okay with it, and they felt like there wasn't a market for the book. So we naturally, we didn't work out. They wanted me to write something else. But I was like, nah, we're good. And move on. That book was going to get put out in any way possible because it was in my head. I hadn't even wrote the manuscript yet, but the idea was there. It was stuck. And I'm like, I'm putting it out. It has to come out. But yeah, when I finally got the opportunity to to write this book, it had to be done. There's a lot of stuff that my son faces that he shouldn't face. And and by extension, we we face it too. And, and we feel it too. And um, I wanted a way that could give people something that they can read that can inspire them and and something that would make them think more deeply about the interactions that they have with each other as well. I wanted to create that. And I was hoping that it would resonate with people. This RAC journey has been weird and wonky and long and and hard. (laughs) And a lot of times it was been awesome too. But yeah, my son was the only kid in his schools that used the AAC and when he was in school. And so it was so incredible to see when I went on tour at all those schools and to see all those kids add one. It was like awesome. It was incredible. I wish my son had the opportunity to go to those schools <laughs> like that. You know, and and I think one of the schools was trying to put or they already did get that, but they were putting um, an AAC device in every classroom. It didn't matter if it was a special education classroom or a general ed, like everyone would have it. So the even kids that are, are considered neurotypical could use it if they needed it. Because a lot of times everyone has those moments where they just can't, they can't do it. They can't talk today, you know, for whatever reason. And that should be an option for every single person. And I was just, I was excited to see that. And I was hoping that, you know, this book would also have people think more about their own needs and their own things that they have. You know, maybe today you don't. We, we're in a world where we text all the time. And they look at my son like he's alien. And they write in emojis all day and they communicate <laughs> in meme. So it's like, why is what we're doing such a, a foreign concept to you? Like, why is that? So it's just trying to like put it out there, push it out there to the front. End. And my hope was that it would reach so many people that they would keep talking about it and they would keep wanting it and they would start to have some conversations. I wanted to start conversations and I hoped that that book would do that. And I'm just, you know, happy that, you know, people are reading it and people are buying it and and that it's, you know, cool. I didn't, not gonna lie, I was gonna say I didn't expect it to be a bestseller. Like I knew it was gonna be a bestseller. Like it was the biggest thing that I was like, I want this book to go far and I want it to go wide because I felt like I had something to not only prove to like myself, but to all those people who felt like there was no market for it and that it needed animals and that it need like I wanted to be like, 
screw you people. It's sold just the way that it was intended to be with us as characters, the main characters, this story, and for this audience. And that audience bought it. But I wrote it because I wanted it to extend beyond the autism community. And that's why I was cool with the title. Because I know that he knows words. And he doesn't, he just doesn't speak the words. But when people that exist be out, outside of this community and they find out that he doesn't speak, they assume he doesn't know words. And so the title fit. And it was for them. It was to challenge those people. And when they read it and they knew that title and then they read the book and they realized he has no words, what do you feel like at the end of that? Like when you finished reading it, you see all the words he did. And so like, that's why it was important for me to include the author note. Cause I'm really trying to reach people outside the autism community. So I know like you have all these like these warring sides within this community. And I resided at the intersection of parent and autistic. And I'm like, we need everybody. I need everybody outside of this community because you have like some really, really, really hardcore advocates who are like, it's like, nothing about us without us and stuff. And I believe that to an extent. I'd be like, I need, I need politicians. I need educators. I need researchers. I need scientists. I need everybody on this because it took this monumental coordinated effort by all people to keep us in the position that we're in. So it's going to take an equally (laughs) massive movement of all bodies from all walks of life to make this world better for us. We can't just do it alone. So I wanted this book to extend beyond us, go far and wide. And that's what I'm trying to do with all, every book I write, I'm trying to do that. Every book and everything I do. <laughs> and you are, you are. Your book and your social media have such, such reach and are resonating with so many people. I'm curious, can you tell the story of how your sons reacted to the book? Oh uh, man, they're teenagers. They don't care. So it's like, <laughs> you know, they're like, whatever. You know, my mom made a book. I feel like they're proud, but like proud in a teenage way. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, oh, yeah, cool. It's mom, she made a book. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, move on and things like that. I know that for Aiden, I think he's cool. I think he enjoys it and he and he sees himself in it. But at the same time, he's also 16 and eh, the book's young for him. So he's like, eh, it's here. I read it it's a couple times. Cool. Uh, you know, so you know, we're 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 working on uh Percy Jackson and stuff right now. We're reading through that and, and stuff. So that's more entertaining for him. <laughs> you know, Jojo, he's just like, Yeah, it's cool. I wrote a book. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, that so sounds exactly like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that they are proud of me and the book and things like that. It's just they're teens. You know. Yeah, yeah, they're teens, they're in their teen world and and they're like, cool. Yeah, go mom, move on. You know, that's kinda like <laughs> where they're at, like, come on. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that they like it, they enjoy it. Jojo's read it to Aiden a few times and but yeah, I think they're proud of it. 
Before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to bring us back to, especially thinking about how folks supporting autistic families, autistic kids and their caregivers can do to to be more empowering, intersectional, collaborative with the folks we support? I think one of the biggest things that you can do is just is listen and behave in a way that your client and their families feel safe enough to open up to you. Because there's a lot of, I know like for in our community, there's a lot of things that we don't share that we could share, but we don't. (laughs) Because we don't feel like y'all would understand that. But it's definitely impacting our lives, the lives of our children and how they respond to those things. Also to be like, aware of the different needs that your clients might have, especially those who are multiply marginalized would have. So like a lot of times I was, when I felt safe enough to share, I was telling my son's therapist that we needed to work on other types of things than they felt were necessary. Like I needed to get my son to wear socks. That was the biggest thing. It had to be done. Teach him how to put it on, teach him how to keep it on, and then put something on his devices and help him to convey that he has a sensory issue and he doesn't always like to wear socks because we had CPS called on us because he didn't wear socks. So this was a need. You know, it wasn't a need before. It's a need now. You know, so it's, it's, and they were like, at first they were like, I don't think this is something we should be working on. Or like, how am I supposed to help him with communicating needs? He has sensory needs and he sucks because at this time he was early on in using AAC. Like, I don't know how y'all do it, but we need to figure out how to do it. Like, either put a button on there that says, like, if he can't keep the socks on and he happens to just take them off, where's the button at on here that just explains that, hey, I'm autistic and I, I really don't like socks and they make me feel bad. How do we put that on there and how do we get him to push it? Like, we need to get that. We need to get there. And they didn't feel like we was there because we were still on, like, you know, in the peck stage and stuff. But I was like, you know what? We got to figure out how to do it because this is what I need because I need my son in my house. Like, I don't want him to move my house because he ain't wearing socks, right? So it's just be having a, a way to to feel like we have the, the people that are working with our children. We want to feel safe enough to share the things that's going on in our lives because um the people that work with our children are important parts of of our life as well um and we have to trust them and we have to have uh open communication with them and being able to understand you know all of the needs not just of the client but of the or the student if you're school-based but of the of the family because disability doesn't just impact the person that has it, it impacts the family. And so I think that for us, in our experience, a lot of our son's therapists didn't always think about how it was for family, how it was for us as well. And I think that when we finally found a couple that did, it was like amazing and it felt like real collaborative and it felt like we were all on this team like and then they were also like family because they cared for all of us as family and we were working together to see you know 
how best to to help. And, you know, doing community things too, community-based things, not always just sitting in uh, the office. Now, like, even if y'all couldn't leave the office, because if you're at school or whatever, but giving us instruction and guidance on what we could do when we're out in the community ourselves, you know, things like that, because we're not always in school and we're not always at home and, and we're part of this world and we should, we deserve to go out. So things that will help us to be outside and to be in the community because uh, people need people, including us. So, so yeah, just, yeah. Such lovely advice. I appreciated how you started with asking us to listen I, I think especially new providers can feel a lot of pressure to come in and like know something, teach something, share something. And your story really illustrates how much we can miss when we're not starting with an openness and an interest in listening and learning and being present and being on on the team of, like you said, not just our client, but our client as part of a family and then zooming out from that as part of a community and making sure yeah. that folks feel included and can access community. This is this is such good advice to any provider supporting autistic folks. Tiffany, yeah. tell us what you're working on now and where we can find you online. You can find me online, uh, Facebook, Fidgets and Fries. I'm on Instagram at Fidgets, period, and period, fries, or dots, whatever you want to. Um, I do have a TikTok same name and I do have a X account but I rarely go on those I don't understand them so <laughs> but I'm on a, like a social media break but I do have a manager who's going to post on Instagram and Facebook for a little bit um for me but I'm also on Substack with fidgets and fries as well and I do have a Patreon same name I am working on another children's book that my agent sent out to about uh, over a dozen publishers so far. And we have some interest, so I'm excited. So I'm working on that. I'm working on an adult nonfiction book that kind of details like my life and how I came to be Fidgets and Fries uh, from kid to, to now. And I am working on an adult picture book. So I'm excited about all those things. <laughs> so yeah. Too. When you started talking about, look at my social media. Do you think I would write a children's book? I was like, I want to read your memoir. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. I was like, been working on it for like a bit. First, it was like starting off where someone would say, just go through all your old posts. And then your essays and stuff, and you could kind of like piece them together and put them in there. And I was started that way, but then I was like, I'll still do that in there, but I want to like, I'm going to add more like life things and, you know, kind of put that all in there. So I'm excited about that one and how that one's going to turn out. Excited. Yes. And <laughs> so, where can people find A Day With No Words? I do have a site. So I have a daywithnowords.com and it has most of the places listed that you could get it. It's in Barnes and Noble, both online and in store in a large portion of them. It's on Target online. And then just now it started popping up in Target stores in the physical locations. So I'm excited about that. I think we're working on getting it in more Target stores because there's so much excitement over it and about it. So, um, yeah, there's there. Um, Walmart online, Amazon, of course, uh, 
independent bookstores. So I would definitely check those first if you want to keep the money in your community, shop indie. And if they don't have it in stock, you could probably order through them and they have a way to uh, get it. But yeah, it's pretty, and Books A Million has books, has it. So it's like pretty much, you know, everywhere books are sold except for discount bookstores like half price books they don't have it um or uh you know vintage bookstores they wouldn't have it either but most major retailers have it and your independent bookstores should have it awesome thank you so much tiffany thank you thanks for listening to the two sides of the spectrum podcast Visit learnplaythrive.com slash podcast for show notes, a transcript of the episode, and more. And if you learned something today, please share the episode with a friend or post it on your social media pages. Join me next time where we will keep diving deep into autism.